The cops on TV are tough guys. Guys like Law & Order's Elliot Stabler, known for flying off the handle. Tell me what happened. Just beat the hell out of a guy. Was he threatening you? His son, he was hitting his son. Hey, well, one second he's got his kid up against the wall, and the next he's busting his face wide open. They don't have much of a home life, and they don't like to talk about their feelings. Why did you come here? There's no place else to go. My captain sent me home. I'm lucky he didn't suspend me. You didn't go home. Well, what's the point? No one's there. My wife left me last year. She took the kids with her. Why did she leave? <laughs> she was tired of me being angry all the time. In season seven, he finally breaks down and sees a therapist for help. What about what happened today? Did that make you feel better? What kind of question is that? Are you judging me? I'm not judging you. You know, don't work me like a part. Look, I came here. This was a mistake. Where are you going? Outside of TV, it's clear that real American police officers are facing a real mental health crisis. Police are more than 50% more likely to die by suicide than the civilian population. But for police officers, it can be tough to ask for help. Officers are essentially socialized to suppress their emotions. They are taught, you know, we're the ones who help others. We don't need help. If you can't deal with the traumatic incidents that we face on the job, then this is not the job for you. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, American policing. My first guest is Stacy Clifton. She's a professor of criminal justice at Radford University and studies how the very culture of police, with things like isolation and suppression of emotion, makes it extra hard for officers to address their mental health crises. Yes, absolutely. So every occupation has a unique cultural realm that individuals kind of um, subscribe to. So within policing, we see this very extreme kind of version of it due to the nature of their position. It's really bound by this kind of cohesiveness with officers. So you see this brotherhood, this sisterhood among officers. Um, yeah. You do see them a bit more isolated and kind of separated from, from other individuals within the communities, um, not necessarily in terms of personalities, but more so, you know, they're working that shift work. So they're a little more isolated. Maybe they're, you know, sleeping when other individuals in the community are out and about and vice versa. They tend to be a bit more suspicious about events when they're out in public, things of that sort. And it makes their position extremely unique when we're talking about their occupational culture. Would you also say that of course, of course, they're women and men, but there is more of a masculine culture than in the population at large. Oh, absolutely. We see it riddled with um, machismo, and we see it riddled with authoritarianism. Um, officers are essentially socialized to suppress their emotions. They are taught, you know, we're the ones who help others. We don't need help. If you can't deal with the traumatic incidents that we face on the job, then this is not the job for you. You hear about communities searching for new recruits, and you wouldn't imagine that everybody who applies already comes with machismo or authoritarianism. Why is there this culture on average within police departments? So everyone that enters into law enforcement it becomes this, this socialization process, and it actually starts at the very initial phase when they start testing. So we put officers through uh, written tests. Sometimes there's polygraph tests or uh, voice stress tests. Um, we see them going through psychological testing, written tests, and then we put recruits through an academy. And that academy becomes this hot house for these subcultural characteristics to become embodied by officers. You've written that this culture can have devastating consequences for the young recruits themselves, for police officers. What are some of the consequences that this way of sort of building up this cohesive culture from police academy on can hurt them? 
officers are faced with this continuous um, kind of realm of traumatic incidents. And if we are not focused on the mental health and the mental well-being of officers, they can face devastating uh, repercussions from this. So we have seen from prior studies that officers um, have earlier death rates. There was an article that just came out um, looking at 26 different states and law enforcement officers were 54% more likely to die of suicide compared to all worker decedents of the study population. That's huge. Absolutely, absolutely. And if, if we think about the nature of their position, this, this even extends to community members as well. So for instance, if you have a community member who was in crisis and the police are called, but that police officer who responds is also in crisis, then when those two individuals meet, we can see devastating consequences because that officer has not had the, the mental health resources needed to protect them and to help them through this mental crisis that they're dealing with, which can have devastating effects, which we've seen community police tensions are high. Um, we're seeing officer suicide rates that are high. Um, so a lot of devastating effects can, can come from this if we're not training our officers to be mentally resilient with their positions. Are you suggesting that in some ways, the culture in the police academies ought to also be changed to give officers tools to um, improve their mental health? Absolutely. When officers are hired on to, to work in these positions, they are typically given psychological testing, written testing, um, physical training or physical fitness testing, things of that sort. However, we, we typically don't follow up with officers. Why are we only testing officers from a psychological standpoint from the initiation of their, their hiring? So we know that we're hiring healthy officers, but what we're seeing is officers that are transitioning out of the department or after retirement, things of this sort, that they're becoming very unhealthy, mentally, physically, um, emotionally, so we need to make mental wellness a priority for our officers. We need to destigmatize this notion of seeking help when they need it um, for officers to feel like that they can actually access mental health resources if they need it. And how do you do that? That is the key question. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that we see within officers is kind of this notion of buy-in. So it starts with management. It starts with the administrators within these departments. We've got to normalize this and we've got to get buy-in from police chiefs, from sheriffs, from city councils. So if we have buy-in from the upper management who are advocating for their officers to seek mental health resources, then that may help kind of the trickle-down effect where our newer officers that are coming in feel that this is normalized. So we are seeing some police academies that are incorporating things like peer support or um, emotional survival for law enforcement, which is fantastic, but we need to continue this. So our officers go through what they call in-service training, and this is where officers are kind of retrained. Um, they might go for like their EVOC or their, their drive training, requalifying on their firearms, things of this sort. But we need to have that mental wellness being part of that in-service as well. Um, and one of the big pieces of it is for officers to not feel like it is a fit for duty kind of test. So that becomes a barrier when we're when we're looking at officers seeking mental health resources, is that they might might feel that it becomes kind of this um, test of whether or not they're fit for duty. So they might feel an even larger pull to not access those resources. How could you make it possible for officers who are experiencing mental health challenges or real stress points? 
to reach out? How could you make it so it would be okay for them to say, yeah, let me tap into some group support or individual therapy or time off? So we really need to look at debriefing. So officers are exposed to traumatic events continuously. So one of the things that we need to think about is what does the stress look like for officers? Two officers can essentially go to the exact same call and one officer is completely devastated by what is happening while the other officer is handling this in a much different manner. Because we know yeah. that stress is stress is this transaction between a person and their environment. So people kind of embody stress very differently. So we need to offer debriefing, de-escalation for officers after different types of events. Um, train more officers with peer support. So we have peer support here in Virginia. Because one of the things, too, that we see with, with law enforcement is that it is this very... A unique culture and breaking into that culture can be very difficult. So if we have peer support, which is basically other officers, so they would have that relational piece. So they know that, okay, well, if I'm talking to this person, they're either in law enforcement or they have worked with law enforcement. So they understand me. They understand what I'm going through. That could be helpful. I think this is so critical, and I hear you. If you could wave your wand and speak to, let's say, the legislature in each state and say, this is what we need across the state and what we need on each of the regional and local levels, what would you ask for? I would ask for support and funding for departments to have um, psychologists and counselors or therapists that are working within those departments, um, but also being able to have those individuals who are professionals in this this kind of realm of, of mental health wellness um, have professionals within various regions. So say that there's an officer at a department who does have a psychologist who works full-time in the department, but they're a little weary about talking to that psychologist because they're housed within the same department, have a resource that's close by. So offering funding for departments to to hire counselors and therapists. We've seen therapy dogs within um, certain departments. We'll see therapy dogs with kind of... um, specialized units like homicide units that have had great results to help lower the stress of officers. Um, so have resources in in that realm for various departments, but to also increase the overall training that we're having for officers on this, this aspect. Have you seen it work elsewhere? Have you seen an academy or a police force or a small unit turn around. So one of the interesting things that I found through some of my research was looking at the use of adaptive coping mechanisms. So basically proper coping mechanisms to deal with stress. So when we think about adaptive coping, you can think about seeking things like emotional support or positive reframing, um, actively trying to fix the situation, things of that sort. So when I was looking at this notion of adaptive versus maladaptive, and when we think about maladaptive coping, it's things like disengagement or avoidance, um, substance use, self-blame, things of that sort. What I found was within an academy class, there were two separate classes that kind of went through a similar academy, except one of the classes had specific coursework on peer support and emotional uh, survival for law enforcement, and the other one did not. The one that did, the recruits, were more likely to um, utilize adaptive coping mechanisms versus the other were more likely to look at maladaptive coping. Because we know that the police subculture in itself it encourages that suppression of emotion. So it, it, it's kind of leaning more towards that maladaptive coping strategies. So within that academy, because those recruits were still kind of bound within one another and they were conformed together, it seemed to really kind of stick with them. But when we go to departments, if it is not normalized and it's not supported, 
then we're seeing officers that are not utilizing those adaptive coping mechanisms. So if we're able to create this normalcy for our departmental bubbles that have these this very um, cohesive and tight-knit group, then we might be able to actually break that stigma. Well, Stacy Clifton, thank you so much for talking with me on With Good Reason. Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Stacy Clifton is a professor of criminal justice at Radford University. Conversations around community policing are so polarizing that it can be hard to have a meaningful and useful conversation. Brian Williams is a professor at the University of Virginia's Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy. His lab, known as PEG Lab, is focusing on bringing different perspectives on policing together. He believes conversations that first hit the heart can also bring about corrective and collaborative action. Brian joined me in the studio with Sebastian Singh, one of his students at UVA. Brian, you've been working with police and communities for decades. How would you say in recent years, especially since George Floyd, community policing or the idea of what we need has changed? I think uh, what has happened is that we've become much more intentional in trying to really get a deeper understanding of what's laying beneath the surface. Um, So I see police departments trying to be active in trying to recruit those with different lived experiences who can inform them of some of their blind spots, uh, who could share some personal stories uh, that allows that police department to appreciate that those folks are assets and not necessarily liabilities. So I think police departments are much more receptive to onboarding uh, community members from different kind of lived experiences to help them kind of provide the services that are needed. Do you think actually, deep down, often, police officers and the people they're policing are afraid of each other? I do. But there's a backstory to it, and that's an uncomfortable kind of story for some people to hear. When we think about the origins of policing, slave patrols, you can kind of think about the role that what we see police played in terms of breaking strikes, uh, those who are immigrants. We can think about the role of law enforcement with uh, aboriginal populations in the Southwest. And all of those things are like shadows right, of a tree that kind of provides some shade, uh, can lead to some, uh, some misunderstandings on both parts. And I think that's the opportunity we have now to kind of shed some light on that. I know scholars and historians say, yes, policing had its origins in slave patrols. But I think people who aren't scholars and historians think, how so? It, you can't feel it now. Some can't, but others can. I'm an African-American male, born and raised in Thomasville, Georgia, the deep south. I feel it. Literally, I'm the great-grandson of two formerly enslaved men born in the 1820s. And I'm not that old. So that distance that some might kind of um, have from it, I don't have. But I, I don't think I'm the exception. Um, I think there are others across the U.S. who have that deep connection to the past and how some of these encounters and interactions kind of bring back those dark days of the past when we think about police-community relations. Sebastian, let me ask you about your experience. You've been a research assistant for Brian in his lab. What projects have you been involved in, but more importantly, What had been your experience with policing prior to this, and how has this experience opened your eyes? Uh, Sure. I've been involved in in a lot of different projects throughout the course of uh, Dr. Williams' lab, but I think one of the most prominent one was um, the Courageous Conversations project that we did. We held um, conversations throughout the state of Virginia in a bunch of localities, bringing together police and the communities in which they live. And I think that one of the key things that I learned during that time was that people are the product of their environment. And because people are the product of their environment, we need to find a way to see beyond and bring people together 
so that each side can humanize each other. So that's a large thing that our lab does. It focuses on proximity, bringing people together so that they can relate and translate that relation into collective action. Give me some of the vignettes that you experienced and witnessed. Would it be one police officer, one member of the community, or several at a time? Most of our work was with several at a time. Um, and at times it got tense. Uh, but by bringing those people together and letting them have conversations, we were able to work through that. Because although the police are their own entity, the police are the people when it comes down to it. So by humanizing the other side... People can work together to, to solve the collective issue of police-community relations. We created what we would describe as a brave space for these courageous conversations and not a safe space. We see safe spaces where you can silo. You stay in your silos, but brave spaces requires you to get outside of your silo by being authentic, being real, sharing your lived experiences with an appreciation that your lived experiences are your lived experiences, makes sense to you, right? But might not make sense to everybody else. And we've had instances within those courageous conversations where some could not identify with certain types of police interactions because they've never lived it. And initially they thought it couldn't happen. If you weren't doing anything wrong, why would a police officer stop you? That, that's not their lived experience. That's rational to them. But once they came in community with others where it happened, they realized, yeah, that's not my lived experience, but I do appreciate that's your lived experience. Did you ever find police officers who really had their eyes opened by being close to and feeling the personal stories of people next to them? I'll share a story. Uh, it's my previous university, University of Georgia. Uh, partnered with quite a few uh, local entities, and one was Chess and Community. Their slogan was, think before you move. And they catered towards kids who've had some challenges. And they annually host a conference. And this year, they decided to bring in a keynote speaker who had spent 20 years in prison. And at the head table, you have the various police executives, Lemuel LaRoche, who is the executive director of Chess and Community. And we're having our little conversation and Lemuel gets up, begins to introduce the keynote speaker, and they were shocked. And one of the chiefs contacted me afterwards. He said, I've been in the profession over 30 years. I thought I knew what a ex-con looked like, sound like, and would say. And it challenged him because of that proximity. Then he brought that person in to help train his officers. So that's, that's one of the things I thought was just excellent, an excellent example. I want to talk just for a moment with Sebastian about the Newport News Courageous Conversations Project, the spoken word effort. That was probably one of the more interesting projects that, that came out of our, our work. Um, and to me, it was a very powerful experience as well. I think that having both police and school children uh, speaking about their experiences and letting the other side know what they were really feeling was extremely profound. They were clearly incredibly engaged in, in what the kids were saying um, and cared about what their perception of the police was. Um, and I mean, the police as well, when they got up to present their, their side, they talked about how nobody saw behind the blue, specifically a black officer talked yes. about that. Yes, young African-American officer who really allowed the kids to understand that underneath the blue, he was black. He's always been black. And that connection, and I think they really were able to identify with him. Uh, but that also, I think, challenged them to kind of take another look at police. Did we prejudge this young black cop? Did we create the distance uh, that divides us from them? Are we guilty of doing what we perceive that they do? And I think that example uh, in that location really highlighted bridging that gap by way of both the police and the community coming together to share their stories, to tell their stories. Are you still a believer in community policing? I am. I am a believer. Uh, but the challenge is bringing that theory into practice consistently. 
And when we look back at our past, it, it can be problematic. What do you mean by that? You mean people have said they were doing community policing, but it didn't really work out? Well, at one point in time, I think it might have been much more lip service. So how do we really embed community policing as a philosophy, not just within the police department, but across a community? So what is it and how should it be done? We all have a role to play in keeping our communities safe. And we have to make sure that we appreciate our roles and our responsibilities. Uh, I do believe in formal control, but I think informal control is much more effective. And what I mean by that, well, community members, when they see something, they say something to that individual within their community. Right now, we see something, we say something into the law enforcement criminal justice system, and they come in based upon the information that they have. And what about Charlottesville? Charlottesville has experienced so much in recent years. More recently, a spate of youth gun violence. Charlottesville, I think like so many other communities, kind of at this intersection of past and present. Where do we go from here? So our lab will be hosting a series of events, November 10th through the 13th, that's associated with the Central Virginia Listening and Learning Exchange. And the focus of that exchange is conflict resolution and violence reduction. And we're really going to center kids, tweens and teens, to be a part of that conversation. So we can hear from them what would they like to see happen, what policies, what practices, what programs are needed from their perspective. Because when you give them that voice and that platform, they will inform you. They will alert you of your dead zones, but also your blind spots. And that's what we will tap into with Seville 2023 around conflict resolution, violence reduction, the siloed kind of polarization that seems to uh, kind of be on the increase right now, beyond just race, ethnicity, or religion. But it, it, it's, it's a little scary to me where we are at this moment. But I remain hopeful. Well, Sebastian and Brian, this has been wonderful. Thank you for sharing your insights on With Good Reason. Thank you so very much. Thank you. Brian Williams is director of the PEG Lab and a professor of public policy in the Batten School of Leadership in Public Policy at the University of Virginia. Sebastian Singh is a third-year student at the University of Virginia. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. A lot of the time when we picture policing, we picture beat cops out on the street. But policing white-collar crime is a whole different picture. Thomas Dearden is a sociology professor at Virginia Tech, and he explains some of the challenges of stopping what we call white-collar crime. We typically think about this in comparison to other criminals. Um, they tend to be older, right? It does take a degree of knowledge to get to the positions where you have access to money and to basically moving money around, right, to commit um, higher levels of embezzlement or even some types of corporate frauds. So we, we tend to find that they are older. Um, historically, there has been almost an exclusive focus on, on men and males. Uh, that, that is certainly changing today. We do see uh, women committing more white-collar crime, but it, it still trends towards, towards men itself. Um, so that overall profile uh, is slightly older, tends to be male, and we also tend to think of them as slightly or wealthy individuals. I think the other important element here is they absolutely do not think of themselves as criminals, right? They don't think of themselves as, a, as what they are doing is criminal. Um, and they have all sorts of strategies to say, no, this, this is just normal business behavior. That's fascinating. They don't think of themselves as committing crime. They simply see it as an opportunity and a weakness in the person that has the money. 
I think some of it is you know, there's a, a lot of regulations and there is some question on whether it's a criminally liable, right? Something that a prosecutor would go after them for or negligence, right? Something that would, would maybe not be prosecuted, but kind of referred to as like civil, like you're going to sue somebody for their negligence. Uh, so, so there is some complexity just with the, the sheer volume of laws, the sheer number of regulatory agencies involved. Uh, but, but one of the conversations I had recently was with um, a professor, uh, Peter Gottschalk in Norway. Um, and he is a business professor and he was a, a, a president of a company for a while before he was a business professor. And um, when we were talking about white collar crime, he mentioned that many of the behaviors that individuals are doing in these companies are, are fairly normalized. And they may not even realize that what they're doing is criminal. Uh, and it's just part of being a good organizational citizen is trying to earn more money for your company. And sometimes that evolves into fraudulent behavior. I remember reading recently about a North Carolina couple who had bilked Medicaid for $17 million by creating a home care service and then billing Medicaid for the people who were already dead. Yeah, absolutely. And so we certainly see a variety of types of not only just organizations, but sectors as they target for white collar crime. A big one is Medicare fraud and just medical fraud generally. Um, it's a pretty lucrative industry. Um, and with uh, kind of the rise of uh, Medicare uh, and Medicaid, we, we see that there are individuals who say, hey, this is a great opportunity to commit fraud against the government and to um, right, obtain money that way. Do you think that white-collar crime, financial crimes, yield more money in the aggregate than all the um, street crime? Oh, absolutely. And when we look at some of those large corporate crimes, uh, we're talking billions of dollars. And it's pretty hard to you know, rob a bank and steal billions of dollars. They, they don't have that cash on hand. And B, they'd be right, stuffing money into bags for, for a very lengthy period of time. Um, so when we look at white-collar crime, the general consensus is that this is going to cost more overall than kind of the smaller street-level crimes. What are the challenges of investigating and prosecuting it? It's a fairly complicated crime, and it's often a crime that crosses jurisdictional boundaries and crosses organizational boundaries. So when I'm thinking of kind of the regulatory agencies, the federal regulatory agencies, uh, typically we think of something like the FBI, but usually you have other regulatory agencies that get involved, things like the Security and Exchange Commission, the SEC, uh, and maybe even the FDA, right, depending on the sector that's involved. So there's a lot of not only difficulty investigation. These tend to be very private behaviors behind private organizations that are difficult to get access to, but also kind of jurisdictional issues and who's involved. Right? What are these crimes that they're committing? Are they federal statutes, things that the FBI is going to go after you for, or are they kind of regulatory violations that are coming from, say, the FDA or the SEC? Let's say it is somebody who for years has been bilking the United Way in a small community, or somebody else who's been siphoning off money from a small town's bank accounts, a teller, right? Mm -hmm. Who would prosecute that, and how complex would that be? Yeah, so it really depends on where it started and where it ends up. So certainly you could have local law enforcement involved, um, sometimes it takes things like forensic accountants to figure these things out, in which case they may go to something like the state police or they may even go to the FBI. Uh, money gets pretty complicated because as soon as we start taking money and crossing state lines and crossing uh, jurisdictions, we start to move up that hierarchy, right? The, uh, the, the policing hierarchy of uh, organizations and jurisdictions. So we may end up all the way even for a local case going with the FBI as the, the lead organization there. Do you think it can be prevented? Are there things that we could do that would have a major impact on reducing white-collar crime? This is a very complicated question. When I think of some of the things that they talk about of, of what white-collar crime is, beyond just Edwin Sutherland's definition that it's crimes committed by those who are fairly wealthy, one of the things that is often discussed is that these are crimes of trust. They are trust violations. So for example, you're going to give some of the money that you made to a 
investment advisor and that investment advisor is going to say, look, I have a responsibility to put this into something that I think is going to make you additional money. However, that investment advisor, even with that responsibility, may say, you know what, I think I'm going to take this and put it in my pocket instead. And so th this is the frauds that we're talking about. Now, in order for us to prevent that, we would really have to have additional monitoring. We'd really have to kind of limit that, say, trust relationship. So there are certain kind of regulatory elements that are involved here that can get complicated and kind of seem like overregulation. And all of it is because our society is built on trust and trying to prevent trust violations is very difficult. What interests you especially about this kind of crime? Well, I, you know, I found this kind of fascinating for a variety of reasons. It is one that is often not discussed. Um, it is it's not very apparent. It's not one that you can easily visualize compared to something like a street crime. But it's something that affects all of us in a variety of ways. You know, we've all probably been the victim of some type of credit card scam. We've uh, maybe invested money in uh, kind of an advisor that did not have our best interests at heart. Uh, we may have been a true fraud victim. And when we think about this, this is a, a crime that is probably bigger in terms of finances, maybe even in terms of volume than street crime. But it's one that's not talked about. It's one that's difficult to research. It's difficult to get good data on. Uh, so I've always found this kind of a fascinating area of crime. Do you think with the increased sophistication of generative AI tools that will be even more susceptible to cyber white-collar crime in this way? Absolutely. And, you know, I started my academic journey as purely a white-collar crime researcher. More and more, I'm seeing my research turn towards the types of online frauds that are increasingly common. It's pretty hard to, say, cook your books, right, to uh, make financial transactions in a book without using a computer at this point. Very few companies are keeping these physical logs anymore. Instead, they're using things like you know, software that tracks your books or even something like Excel. Uh, so more and more we're seeing that computers are involved. It's probably pretty rare to have a white collar crime that doesn't involve some form of computer. And of course, we're seeing more sophisticated frauds, things that use, say, the deep fake and AI technologies to convince you right, to hand over your money, to trust right, trust this fraudster. They have your intentions, best intentions. They're going to make you more money. And the way they do that is certainly becoming more technological and more complicated. You know, I, I think one of the, the most confusing and complicated aspects of white-collar crime is it's been a pretty short history. We're talking 1949 when this term was coined. A lot of literature has focused on Sutherland had a point. He had a point that we tend to ignore crimes committed by the wealthy. But the way that he approached it was not necessarily helpful in isolating and understanding the crime itself. So two of the terms that we frequently use are corporate crimes, and these are crimes that are committed by organizations, or at least by individuals on behalf of organizations, or occupational crime. And these are commit crimes committed by individuals, say, during the course of their job, but really for their own benefit. Uh, so I like those two terms just because it kind of helps us think about what are some of the, broadly speaking, differences in motivation between offenders, whether they're working for that organization itself and saying, hey, I want to further this organization, I want to further their goals. Uh, could that be selfish? Absolutely, right? They tend to climb the corporate ladder faster. But this is different than someone who is, you know, siphoning off some money from their company, right? That occupational crime. Yeah, totally see that. Thomas Dearden, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Thank you for having me. Thomas Dearden is a sociology professor at Virginia Tech. Before England had a police force, Queen Elizabeth I had a secret enforcer whose name was Richard Topcliffe. Topcliffe's job was to track down suspected Catholics and use their own pro-Catholic books as weapons against them. Centuries later, Mark Rankin found those books and uncovered the treasonous evidence that Topcliffe had planted in their margins. Mark Rankin is an English professor at James Madison University. 
Mark, before we get into Richard Topcliffe, what did law and order look like in England during that period? There were two forms of law under Queen Elizabeth I. There were royal proclamations. There were parliamentary statutes. Uh, Proclamations, the queen would say, this is my wish. And if you don't do it, I won't like it. Statutes say, if you do this, if you do X, here's the penalty, a fine, imprisonment. So parliament added teeth to the laws. Um, There were also a whole range of sort of local laws and local jurisdictions sort of underneath that national system. But who was the police state? There was no police. There were no standing police. There was no standing army. Um, The society was held together through... Uh, consensus through um, guilds, trade guilds, local local policing, local management of workers, of apprentices. So what about Elizabeth herself? Was she a sweet queen like another Elizabeth who came long after her? <laughs> um, you know, the winners write the history books. And we have this image of Queen Elizabeth I as a sort of glorious ruler who presided over this golden age of literature and and discovery and so on. But if you were on the wrong side, she was a tyrant. And Roman Catholics saw her as a tyrant. They saw her as illegitimate. They saw her as the the daughter of an incestuous marriage. And they thought that she had no business on the throne. Why did she become so afraid of Catholics and seek to have them purged from England? Well, she actually didn't care about Catholicism per se. What she cared about was people going to church. She famously said, I don't make windows onto men's souls. And what she meant was, if you come to church, you conform to the system. I don't care what you believe. If you don't go to church, you pay fines. Because if you went to church, you could be governed. Everything changed, however, about 12 years into her rule, when the Pope at the time, Pius V, excommunicated the queen. What that means is that he threw her out of the church and he called upon all of her subjects to stop obeying her and the Catholic kings of Europe to invade the country. She was a threat to the stability of Europe in his eyes because she was Protestant. So she became fearful of what Catholics might do to dethrone her? That's right, because the leading Catholics after she came to the throne left the country and they participated in what is really a kind of a cold war. These Catholic intellectuals, they conspired and plotted with leading members of the nobilities of these Catholic countries like France and Spain I've mentioned, uh, in order to try to overthrow the government, England's government. And the problem was compounded by the fact that there was no heir to the throne. Elizabeth was not married. Her heir was Mary, Queen of Scots, the Queen of Scotland, a Catholic. And so these plots were intended to put Mary, Queen of Scots on the throne. So where does Richard Topcliffe come in? Richard Topcliffe was the arm. He was the agent. There there was a kind of a secret police that he was in charge of. And he and his team, he he had people under him, his underlings. They would go into the homes of suspected Catholics, drag people out of their hiding places, confiscate their property, and facilitate their prosecution and their execution. Queen Elizabeth and her government executed about 200 Catholic subjects, hundreds, not dozens. Um, And Topcliffe was the officer. I, I liken it to the SS during World War II. Did she understand how evil he was? She did. She knew exactly what he was doing. You've discovered that he was actually writing marginal notes into the books of these persecuted Catholics to get them in trouble, to plant evidence against them. That's right. That's right. The government wanted to get rid of these people, but they needed some form of legitimacy. They needed to proceed under a shred of legitimacy, and they employed Topcliffe to create a paper trail of evidence. There's one particular example of a book smuggler, and he smuggled 500 copies of a particular book. It's an important book. Topcliffe, his marginalia in one of the copies, what he wrote in the book, was used to draw up the formal indictment against this man. He specifically wrote things in the book that showed the government how the book broke the laws in place. Oh, each time he found what was considered a banned book, 
that would promote something about Catholicism. He would write, explaining to all the persecutors, this is why this is terrible evidence that's, against this person. That's right. I mean, if we think about, a, 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 a you know, modern banned books, um, a book like Huck Finn, for instance, is banned in some circles or has been banned. But if I tell you, Sarah, I, I have a copy of Huck Finn, um, that might annoy someone, but it wouldn't be illegal per se. But then if someone from the state comes into my library, takes my copy of Huck Finn and writes on the front page, this book breaks this law in this way, and then sends that book to a superior, that's what Topcliffe did. In other words, the books that he's finding are troubling to people, but they're not illegal per se. But he says, yes, they are. And he takes the books and, and brings them into the courtroom in the trial. He, his writing helps the government draw up the documents that are used to accuse these people of conspiring to assassinate the queen. Do you think he figured this out on his own or was he asked to do it? That's a great question. I think that he was a brutally intelligent man. I think that he saw the need for someone like him. I think that he really believed that these people were dangerous. And in a sense, the government was responding to the pope as a foreign prince who said, don't obey the queen. And so by one way of looking at it, they were traitors. And that's what the government said. They, they, they put out publications to try to explain, we execute traitors. And the Catholics said, no, you persecute people for religion. And that was the kind of, that was the kind of weaponizing of, of, of books that was happening. Topcliffe's story is that the, in a sense, it is an early form of the same kind of police brutality that we see today. People are profiled People are shoehorned into prejudices and people's biases, except it's not, in my case, with the 16th century race. My story with Topcliffe, it's religious biases, religious hatred, not racial hatred per se, but religious hatred. Was he mostly going after Jesuit priests, Catholic priests? So the Jesuits uh, were one group of Catholic priests. He was going after any Catholic priest that he could find and anyone who gave shelter to that priest. See, Catholicism is a religion that requires um, materials, requires ceremony, the mass. Uh, there, there are services that Catholics were told, don't go to the Protestant services. You need a priest. If you can't find a priest, here are some books that you can read. And so it's priests and books. Those are the things that Topcliffe is after. He would torture people. He would take them into the Tower of London. For a while, he tortured them there. He would then, when that got a little dicey, he actually received permission to torture them in his own house. He would um, hang people uh, with their arms above their heads and elevate them off the ground a few inches so that their toes barely touched the ground. And he would leave them there for hours. And then he would come back and say, who supports you? Where do you get your money? Who do you know? What books, what evidence of you are a criminal? And even kind of, you write, cruelly tease them. Cruelly tease them. I mean, for me, it's the, Topcliffe has always been known as a torturer. The reading piece is, is my discovery that it's the connection between reading and the torture rack. You call him a professional reader. That's right. Was there such a thing in that day? There was, because at the time that I'm studying during Queen Elizabeth's reign in the 16th century, you could be powerful and rich and not be literate. Or maybe you don't have time. But let's say that you're a member of the nobility and you want to lead a regiment uh, in some campaign on the continent and you want to know what other authors have said about you know, different forms of government or different forms of legitimizing foreign invasions and so on and so forth. So you would find an intellectual. You would hire him to come and live in your house. You would give him a place to stay and food, room and board, and he would read for you. And he would come up with sort of abstracts. He would say, here are a few sentences on what all these other authors say about your question. And you would ask a question and he would give you an answer from his reading. This professional reader was a legitimate career option in Tudor England. And Topcliffe was such a man. But even with a powerful, vindictive, possibly, Queen Elizabeth and frightened Queen Elizabeth and all sorts of government people at her heel, 
Topcliffe's cruelty and sadism exceeded even what other government enforcers could stand. That's right. He is doing the dirty work that the government needs done but is unwilling to do itself. And all the evidence for his salary is all shady. It's all under the table. Handshake deals, um, you know, things that he would normally have no business to. For example, salaries for country parsons. There were established salaries if you had a church in whatever village. Um, they were called livings. And Topcliffe actually went to court to get one of these salaries for himself, even though he was not a priest or a parson in any way. His work is enabling the government to create the evidence that it needed to prosecute Catholics as traitors leading to execution. And so that's why my story is really judicial violence. It's, it's a kind of distortion, the judiciary and the uh, Topcliffe as a kind of sadistic um, executive police guy are coming th with this unholy alliance whereby they're going to suck people in and create evidence that they need and then crush them. Mark, this is fascinating. Thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Mark Rankin is an English professor at James Madison University. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Aviva Costo and Liliana Bukowski are our interns. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast or to comment, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.